0: to Greater Than Code episode 126. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Coraline Ada M. Key.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm very happy to welcome our guest today, Susan Baum. Susan has spent much of her career focused on leadership, with leaders who are conferred, but also those who are leaders who rise to leadership without a title. She writes for the leadership section of Fast Company. Susan is also a certified executive coach. She helps tech leaders with their personal effectiveness to avoid burnout so they can have the impact that they want and works with C-suite leaders on organizational strategy. Susan has worked in technology for over 15 years in various positions from project management to marketing and most recently was the COO of Travis CI. Welcome, Susan.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me on.
1: If you've ever heard the podcast before, you know what we're going to ask you next. Um, We always open with this question. Susan, what is your superpower and how did you develop it?
2: I have to tell you, I love this question because I work on it with my leaders in the work that I do. So this is like when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, yes. So I consider my superpower to be asking questions. And what I mean by that is when I went to coach training, we learned this thing called powerful questions and we learned the power of questions, right? Like lots of times we tell people things. And as, especially as we get further in our career, we think we have to have like smart advice, but actually I think asking questions can really root out lots of really good information and assumptions that we're making. So I consider that like my superpower.
1: Is that something you were always good at or is that a skill you had to develop?
2: I was the kid who asked everything. Why is the sky blue that kid? However, I do think it was a skill I learned and really honed when I went through the coaching training.
1: Maybe we should make this podcast, turn it around and have you ask John and I questions.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the reasons I love doing my podcast because I never run out of questions to ask. Yeah. Actually, you know what, Coraline, I was thinking about what you just asked me. Um, So I also have a master's in social work. You are asking me, was I always good at questions? And I actually really remember now the answer is no because I went to school to get a master's of social work. And my um, track was basically organizational effectiveness and community organizing for like nonprofits and organizations. And I had to take a class in the more like therapeutic range of things, right? Like that track. I can't remember what they called it, like clinical or something. And so we had to do this computer program. And I was terrible at asking questions. It was supposed to be like, Coach, like, and I was not good. I passed the class, but like only with like a B plus, which is not great in grad school. Um, so I wasn't very good at asking questions back then. I think I wasn't really dialed in, and I so there. It's true, I wasn't great at it, and now I am. So I think you can gain in it for sure.
0: Were there specific things that you did to get good at that, or is it just a matter of practicing over the years?
2: Well, two things. One, coach training really helped you because. Coaching is all about allowing other people to find their answers rather than telling, right? That's a big difference between mentoring and coaching. Mentoring oftentimes doesn't have to be this way. So I'm going to make some assumptions here. I'll call them out. But oftentimes mentoring looks like we tell other people what we did or our experiences. We we advise them on what to do. Whereas coaching is really about other people finding their wisdom. We might advise them here and there, but the school I went to, the Coaches Training Institute, one of their core principles is powerful questions. And so we spent, it was really funny in the first course, At all of us, well, you should do this, you should do that. We were all horrible at it, right? In the beginning, we were all like putting on our advisor hat. And we're so smart. So I think it's a weekend course. I really stumbled a lot with it. But as I took more courses and kept practicing it, it did get better. So I think it's a combination of taking classes and having someone really, Specifically say, turn that into a powerful question, right? How can you, or how can you make that into a powerful question? And then practice really helps
1: me. I find that's very true in the mentoring that I do. And I'm actually inspired a lot in my mentoring by my relationship with my therapist. She won't tell me what to do in a given situation. She'll rather ask questions and help me find the answer within myself. I try to mirror that. In my experience, mentoring can involve coaching. I think there are different styles of mentoring. And one of the ways you can become an effective mentor is by determining what style of mentorship your mentee needs at the time and being open to that changing over time. Sometimes it's technical mentorship. Sometimes it's just listening. Sometimes it's coaching. And sometimes it's advocacy.
2: Oh, my gosh. I love those. That's so good. I feel like you're absolutely right. and We don't spend enough time thinking about what type – what do they really need and the, the different ways that we can present that support. Love that.
0: Yeah, that's a good breakdown. You should write a blog post.
1: Maybe I should write a book, John. What do you think? Oh, God. That's
2: a great idea. I <laughs> love it. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. it would be so helpful for people.
1: I am actually writing a book, Susan. <laughs>
2: Oh, okay. I'm am not in on it. This is that's awesome. What is? That? Can I ask? What's the book about?
1: It's uh, it's called The Compassionate Coder. It's about practicing empathy in software development. <gasps> and the book, the book tracks. We start with the basics of empathy, defining our terms, and um, talking about the importance of emotional intelligence. And then, um, in subsequent chapters in the book, we track the career of a developer as they, like from starting out all the way to being very senior and being very influential in their field, and give them guidance on how they can look at the world and look at their work and their relationships through an empathy lens. I've been working on the book for way too long. I have a co-author, Naomi Freeman. We actually did an episode on the show about some of our early ideas, and we're hoping to come back when the book's actually written, which is going to be later this year, and I'm super excited about that.
2: That's awesome. I feel like empathy is something that is such an important skill and the one that we really need more of in tech.
1: But, Susan, tech is just about technology. It's about being the smartest person <laughs> in the room. And it's all about sure is. <laughs> lone geniuses cranking out code in the middle of the night in their copious free time and changing the world. Don't you know that?
2: Absolutely. That's why I joined tech.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's funny because uh, I, I obviously get your, your sarcasm. And as a person who deeply works in technology, right, I've worked in technology for over 15 years and I know how to code a bit in Ruby. And I've obviously done some PHP, regard, you know, related to WordPress. But sometimes I, I'm an outsider, right, because I'm, I'm more on what we might call the people skills side. So I love podcasts like this and folks who are talking like that really and really technical people who are talking about that makes me really excited.
1: So um, Susan, do you still actively code? I'm really curious as to how you blend technology with your coaching, if they're very distinct, or if you find a utility in staying current with technology through the work that you do?
2: Yeah, you know, I've always coded only for fun. I was really clear I was never going to be a software developer, but I wanted to learn how to code. I was, you know, really fascinated. I found all my friends my closest friends and, and even my partner is a software developer. So I learned it more for myself. I do code here and there. I make, I'm make i making like some small apps, like a digital magic eight ball with really interesting quotes from like Shakespeare and, but also modern influences like the matrix and, you know, hip hop and things like that. It's like a little, you spin it. And if you needed like an inspiration that day. So I don't code a ton but I do try to stay up on technology, like what are the latest languages? What are the big things that are happening in technology? Um, and I work with a ton of technologists, and so I, I feel it helps my work because – they can talk to me in a way that, and I understand it. We don't have to, we have a shared language because I understand things like what a pull request is and sprints and all those kinds of things. So I I stay up with it by reading and and just being deeply involved in the tech community and all my clients. um, And I try to code a little bit.
0: That's really interesting. How did you sort of come to the path where you're interleaving this coaching work and the technical work?
2: Oh, my gosh, that is such a good question. I'm thinking, how did I? (laughs) Because I don't know that it was conscious, to be really frank about it. I started working in technology during Web 1.0, right? When we were trying to build, you know, shopping carts were really hard problems and million dollar problems to solve. And I was working for an interactive agency and we built American Airlines first website and we were doing all those kinds of things. And I ran a project management department and I discovered how much I love technology. And my friends at the company were all software developers, every single one of them. That was who I was closest with and then a few designers. And I thought it would be the project managers, but it wasn't. And I think I've just over the years have noticed that when I kind of went away for a little bit and did some, you know, healthcare stuff and other consulting stuff, I kept coming back to technology. And I think this is maybe not answering your question, but I think it's just an organic way of just blending things that I love together. Like I love people and human interaction and how we can be our best selves and how organizations can be their best and serve their people the best. And I also love the power of technology and what it can do with its downsides, of course. Um, And I love the creativity of developers. They are just some of the most creative people. So it's organic, I guess. I don't know that I have a better answer. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) As you work with organizations and organizational effectiveness, are there common problems that you see in the relationship between technologists and the organizations that they work for?
2: I think what I can say, I'm going to answer this maybe a little bit differently. One of the things I think is I see as a pattern and that that's a challenge is how do we blend technology and the power of technology and what it can do with humans in all of their irrationality and their emotions, which I love. But how do we blend those two and how do we make them work well together? Because I love the idea of automation and using the power of technology in an organization. But I think that we're always constantly looking at that edge around emotions. So, for example, I think about like things like asynchronous communication and Slack. And those are wonderful tools. And yet there's a lot of human aspects that are missing from them. Right. That's pretty obvious. And I find that most organizations are often struggling between those two. They're trying to figure out how to take advantage of that and how to maximize people's time and the remote aspect of things, right? The distributed aspect of many technology teams these days with the human aspect and the human emotional side.
1: You also bring up an interesting point with remote organizations, the communication challenges are different, right? And I think a lot of companies are afraid Of being open to a remote workforce because they don't think those asynchronous communication tools are an effective replacement for wandering up to someone's desk and interrupting them and asking them a question, right? Mm
2: -hmm. It's true. There are lots of companies who are still, even today, who are very nervous about that.
1: Slack itself is not a distributed company. You have to, uh,
2: <laughs> I know. Isn't that interesting?
1: Yeah. I read
2: that, that RANS, you know, um, and repose Michael Lopp, who, uh, I, I don't know if he's at Slack anymore, but head of engineering or something, VP of engineering. And I was really surprised to learn because I was doing an article on remote, basically distributed teams and what people and other companies can learn about remote work from technologists. And I was surprised to learn that they are not remote. They're not a distributed team.
1: Yeah. My boyfriend is pretty early in his tech career. Well, somewhat early in his tech career. And he works for a more traditional. He works for an insurer. And they are a very sort of conservative organization. And yesterday, he was telling me he had to get up for an 8 a.m. all-day meeting. So every single engineer, every single member of the company got together for eight hours to discuss business strategy and customer retention and things along those lines. And I just like that is such a strange world to me, having worked remote for five years now. I can't imagine, first of all, how you would keep an entire company of people engaged for eight hours, how you could possibly make any decisions with a group that large. And just the immense cost of bringing people together in that kind of way.
2: I mean, it's true. I thought that too. Think, wow, eight hours is a, a long amount of time. I mean, I'll be honest. When I went to work at Travis, I was a tiny bit nervous about doing my work completely distributed. I've done similar work before, more in person, and I've worked distributed for many years. But the role I was in as COO, you know, it was really focused on organizational effectiveness, organizational change, leadership development, management, career development. And in my old job, I used to go around and just do rounds in the the morning and the afternoon and just kind of talk with people and see what they were up to. And oftentimes it rooted out interesting things that were going on for the person or the organization. And I thought, oh, I have to figure out how to do this a different way. And it ended up working out wonderfully. I actually enjoyed it much more. Now, I don't think I would go back to a traditional environment that wasn't distributed. But I'll be honest, in the beginning, I was a little wondering, well, how would I figure out how to do that?
1: Yeah, it's hard to manage when walking around when you're in your home office, right?
2: Right. I can walk around, but, you know, no one else will see me. Yeah. Um, And it turned out it wasn't really that hard, uh, to be frank. It, It was a much easier process than I thought it was. It was just reading Slack channels and getting the right configuration and watching things and getting the right routine. And it, it soon became seamless. And as I said, I actually preferred it and found that I did not miss one ounce of the old office way. It didn't bother me. It didn't, And it didn't have any impact on the work I did.
1: Yeah. Do you find that companies that embrace a remote work culture for their developers are hesitant to make their management the upper echelons of management remote as well. I know that's the case at Stitch Fix where I work. If you want to be a director or hire, you pretty much have to have an office. You have to have a, a seat in headquarters because there's still this reluctance to make managers distributed as well.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to me because I noticed that trend too, and I don't necessarily agree with it. When we're thinking about it that way, I'm going to make a bold statement, but I'm not sure you're thinking about your culture of your organization in the right way, because now you have developers who are off on their own, but how are you bringing them in? How is the whole company communicating and working together, right? Because that just makes me wonder about how they're thinking about all of their team and how, how decision-making happens. If they're saying, well, if you're this, you have to be in person. Okay. So then all of, are all of the decisions being made in person then, and developers are not involved in those strategic decisions and they're just informed later. Well, if your product is all technology, that's concerning to me because they should be woven into the development of your product and the way that you set your organization has a lot of influence on that.
0: Yeah, you, you said exactly what I was gonna say about that, where you you build that organizational divide between the remote and the in-person. And and that I think that always leads to problems, whether it's the one person on the team that's remote and then always gets left out of the discussions. Or if it's the whole one department or one layer of a department that's remote and gets left out of the discussions. I think until everyone's remote, you're not thinking in those terms about how to weave everyone into the discussions as they go on.
2: I mean, it's a really good point, John, about organizational divides and how we unintentionally create them, even if we don't mean to. And I do think like Travis was a mostly distributed team, though there was a small office in Berlin. And I I do think that that style can work as long as you're clear about how decisions get made and how that you basically make sure you don't create those organizational divides. Like my whole team was in Berlin, except me. So they all saw each other all of the time and I never saw them except on the screen. I think it helped that I was the leader of the team, but I never felt that divide between them
1: Is there a difference, out of curiosity from your experience, is there a difference between European and American companies and their approach to remote work?
2: I'm not sure if I have an answer because I flip-flopped. I was going to say one thing and then I was going to say another. I don't know if I can answer that at the moment because I've seen examples of both where many American companies are willing to adopt the distributed lifestyle and I've also seen European ones that are I think that for me, the real difference would be perhaps the size of the company, right? I think that might have a little bit more to do with it, but now I want to totally study this, Caroline. I love yeah. this question. I'm like, I'm totally going to look into this because I am doing a terrible job answering it, but I love the
1: question. My girlfriend was Swedish. My ex-girlfriend was Swedish and she worked for Spotify and they had offices in San Francisco and New York. And she decided she wanted to change and wanted to experience more of the world. So she moved to San Francisco and was working out of that office. And then later, she moved to Chicago, where I am. And the culture was not supportive at all of her remote work. And at one point, they actually said, you either have to move to New York or San Francisco, or we're going to let you go.
2: Oh, no. So what happened? What did she do? I'm like, a cliffhanger. What happened?
1: They let her go. <gasps>
2: wow
1: that kind of colored my um impression of european companies i think travis is an exception in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. and there probably are exceptions but it seems to me like the promise of the eu would be that you can be wherever you want within europe and the notion of citizenship was a little bit different in the eu pattern i think that would grant you a lot of flexibility but i hear these examples like spotify and i'm like what is going on over there
2: yeah. And I, I think that, again, I go back to also to the size of the company. And I, I think whether people are, the way that the leaders are thinking about their company holistically, you know, that maybe sounds funny, but it's like, holistically, what's what's your view on your culture and your people and your strategy? But yeah, that's, I'm really sorry to hear about that story.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a struggle for a long time. It was a very difficult time for both of us, actually. So what, are the kinds of company cultures that lend themselves well to remote work versus companies that really are not going to be successful with that kind of approach?
2: I think one of the things is like a, an openness, being open to new approaches. Like if you're open, you have more flexibility. So if the, one of their values is to be open, that is one of the, the qualities that really helps uh, that to happen. Uh, And it's also because it's also openness also talks to an openness of culture, because when you have a distributed company, oftentimes you're going to have folks from all over the world. And even if you're, let's say you just even focus on America, the Americas and Europe, you still have many different cultures in there, right? Really distinct cultures. Yeah. And, And I think that that's really important, right? That we're, we're open to other cultures and we we're willing to shift. So, For example, a funny thing that I learned to do is really work on my American slang and be very careful about that. And what I learned to do was, I would always say things like, fingers crossed, right? And so then then we would talk about what does that mean? And then what does that mean in a German culture? And so then we ended up with thumbs pressed and fingers crossed. So we would end when we were like hoping something would happen, we would say fingers crossed and thumbs pressed. And that might be a silly example, but it really bonded us as a team. We would all put our hands up with one finger crossed and one thumb pressed in. I'm doing that right now for those of you listening who can't see me. It was just an example of like of, in a culture when you're open, you're more open to the some of the cultural differences because it's not just about what thing you use Slack versus different communication channels. It's about how open are you to adapting to someone else's reality?
1: Do you think there's also a matter of trusting your employees?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Trust is another one. And there's lots of ways at getting at that culture-wise, right? You can build a culture that is super results-oriented. And if you're getting results then but that trust factor goes up and people who might feel the need to micromanage may get over that. But I, I do think that building a trusting culture and trusting your people is really, really huge for distributed cultures. But I'm also curious, John and Coraline, what else do you think, you know, other things that might be good that, that you've seen?
0: Well, I was picking up on what you were talking about openness just now. And something that, that struck me, at least about the way my team operates, which is that when we have this remote situation, you're seeing into other people's lives. Like maybe it's just their office, but occasionally it's not their office. Maybe they're on the couch, or maybe I'm on the couch, and you get to see their cats walking across their desk, and the, maybe the children coming in to ask for lunch, and you just get that like much more you know open sense of of these people and who they are and what their lives are like, and I, I like getting that sense of people. It's like, Oh, you've got three dogs. I get to see them hanging out in the background every time we're on a meeting. And that's really cool. And so that's something that that struck me about as what you were saying.
2: You're like human, like like, there's like a human aspect to it. We're not just robots who are results oriented. And you know, this is a company and don't bring your personal stuff. I love that. Like being really human. I love that, John.
1: It's really true. I'm kind of reminded of uh, Douglas McGregor, and the uh, theory of management that Douglas McGregor put together in the 50s, he was a contemporary of Maslow, who is famous for the Maslow hierarchy of needs. He kind of riffed on Maslow a bit, and he came up with two kind of styles of management, um, Theory X and Theory Y. And in Theory X management, it tends to be very autocratic to use modern management language, and it comes down to a distrust of your workers and thinking that you have to be very direct and very – you make the decisions. Decision-making is centralized. You tell your workers what to do, and they do it. And if they don't, they get punished. And if they do, they get rewarded, as opposed to theory why, where it's more about not self-actualization exactly, but more autonomy. And that's more of the, uh, not a laissez-faire management style, but an almost paternal or maternal management style, very collaborative, where there's more trust in the organization and you're empowering your employees to take part in the decision-making process. And I'm wondering if, if those are absolutes in terms of how an organization functions, or if there's an evolutionary aspect to the way that management changes and reacts to the workforce.
2: I love that. Uh, I don't know that theorist, but no, I'm going to look it up. I'm scribbling notes down here of things I want to look up later. I love that idea of autocratic versus autonomy. And I, I think autonomy, you're really getting at something there, Coraline, in terms of distributed teams. Autonomy can really help build trust and allow a team to function under those conditions. I guess what I might say about like how that transition happens, or whether it does. For me, my experience it has largely been based on the leaders at a company and what those leaders' philosophy was, and the way that they saw their people. Um, I think that the leadership has a lot to do with, you know, whether autonomy is really more held or becomes more autocratic. That's sort of what my experience has been. So what I mean by that is I think that that a company can move back and forth across that continuum and it's not linear, that it can sort of jump around based upon the leadership that's in place at the time. And then, of course, related heavily to the conditions that the company is, is working under, like, you know, the market and those kinds of things.
0: Going back to the question about how you sort of charted your path, because I, I feel like I have had a similar path in technology where, you know, I've been straight up developer for a long time. But over the last decade, have been broadening into um, a lot more non-technical skills and started doing a, a talk recently called Hacking Your Emotional API." where I used the uh, API metaphor to describe how feelings work and like as a request response thing. So like that also happened very organically. It wasn't like I decided that I was just going to start fusing these two sides of my interests into into one thing. But that's what I did. And so I'm sort of curious as to like, when did you decide that you were going to like go to CTI and get your coaching certification and how that was going to fit into your career?
2: sort of moving along in the very early parts of my career. And I had like, my degrees are in psychology, sociology, and all that kind of world. I've always been really fascinated with human behavior. And then, of course, I fell into technology and then thought, oh, I'm fascinated with this too. And when I became the head of the project management department, I had 12, 13, 14 people and I began to think a lot about managing people and leadership at that time in, in really heavy and deep ways and noticing the difference in people and how people responded and how I needed to respond differently to different people. I couldn't just be as a manager or a leader I couldn't be one way right I had to shift according to them or at least I didn't have to but I found I got more results and we had a better relationship and they were happier too and so I started. Studying, I don't honestly remember how I found coaching. This was, to be frank with you, showing my age a long time ago when coaching was thought of as like little league. We, you, If you would say coaching, people had no idea what it was. And I somehow found it. And then I got a coach for some reason. I don't even remember why. And then one day I said, oh, I think I want to become a coach. My coach said, finally, I've been wondering when you were going to come <laughs> to that conclusion because... You have all of the right things for it. And I thought, oh, okay, cool. And so I just started taking courses in it. I don't know that I intended to become a coach, but I wanted what coaching offered. I wanted the skills that coaching brought, right? And I think there are so many, I'm a huge advocate of people learning coaching skills because it can help in so many different parts of your life. And you know, even if you don't want to, you know, if you still want to be a coder, You know, and work in technology doesn't matter. Those skills can help you no matter what. So that was how I found it and how I got involved in it. And becoming a coach was almost like an accident or an afterthought. I just kept getting deeper and deeper in and thought, oh, wait, there's so much I want to learn. I want to become better at this.
0: So basically you following the threads of the things that interest you and making the most of what you learn there.
2: Story of my life. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I would consider I like to uh, I like to joke that I think in circles, swirls and stars when it comes to my career, I am not a very I can definitely you know, I obviously I manage a project management department and I can think linearly but when it comes to managing my life, I tend to do it more intuitively and listening to what feels good as my dad, and I, as my dad always says, my dad's an engineer, by the way. So my dad is a mechanical engineer and he worked for GM. So he had these pieces of wisdom. And what he used to say was good decisions get better and bad decisions get worse. And I've always followed that, right? Like, so, so project management, I enjoyed it. I mean, I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it. So project management as a career path wasn't getting better for me. I was just working a ton and feeling revved up and stressed out. But becoming a manager and learning coaching skills, oh, it got better and better. And not only did it get like, was I good at it? I actually enjoyed it. So I just have, I think that my dad's wisdom of good decisions get better, bad decisions get worse. And along with, he taught us how to use our intuition. He always taught us how to listen to ourselves. So that's I think how I've crafted my career.
1: That's really interesting to me, the idea of listening to yourself. I did not used to be a very intuitive person. I think all of us have that inner voice that is telling us like what's best in a moment or what might be best for our future. But I found over time that it's a skill you can actually develop and that by opening yourself up to listening to that inner voice, the inner voice gets louder. And more accurate, and can really provide some sort of innate wisdom that we don't really have access to on a conscious level.
0: Yeah, I've been developing that myself. It seems like it would be a useful source of data. So just trying to listen a little bit harder and try and see what non conscious information is coming in.
2: It's such a useful skill. And I think there's a little bit of a misnomer. Maybe it's changed over the years. I I think that the old perception of people like software developers was like, oh, they're super rational and analytical, and they can't listen to emotions, and they don't understand that. And I always thought that was wrong, mostly because I grew up in a household with a father who was a serious engineer, but was also the one who taught me how to use my emotions and how to listen and sort them out and how to listen to my instincts. My mom didn't do that. That was my dad. I think that's changing, and I love that you both are like leaning into that, because Listening to yourself and intuition is really just inner knowledge. Everybody can grow in that. It is not just for the limited few. It's not like you got it when you were younger. And if you missed it, well, that ship sailed. You can do it today. You can continue to grow all the time in your self-knowledge.
0: It's interesting the parallels that I'm actually seeing between our our sort of career paths because, like, I, I've been doing this thing that I've been doing for a while with these talks I've been giving and getting more and more interested in the psychological side of things. And just recently got promoted to manager, and I've got a now I'm starting a team to manage, and now we'll have to really really level up my skills in that area. But I'm excited to do that because there are skills I'm interested in having.
2: Well, and as a manager or a leader, it's really interesting. I feel like the instinct a lot of times when I, I so I've taught a lot of new managers and, and leaders, I think the instinct is often to reach for a book about management. And that's great. And what I would also say is, reach for introspection, really go inside just what you're saying, john, like, Oh, I need to go inside and think about me, I want to understand myself better, and think about things that are maybe seem intangible you know, emotions, feelings, the subtleties of communication. So I think that that's like such a great way to get started on a management journey.
1: I want to call one thing out. You mentioned management and leadership. And Hmm. uh, for me personally, I do consider myself a leader, but I'm not interested in management. I went the management track during the first half of my career and worked up to C-level. At first, I thought I was happiest writing code. And so I shifted back to an individual contributor role. But because of my seniority, I've been doing software development professionally for 25 years now. I have found leadership opportunities that are not technical, that are about helping people level up and helping people be their best selves. And that's really a big focus for me. I try to balance that with technical leadership, um, which is a hard balance to achieve, honestly. But you can be a leader without being a manager. I really strongly believe that.
2: Coraline, I'm so happy you brought that up. I think we've talked about it before because I 100% agree and it's a really important distinction. I mention it because I think managers and leaders both need to do that. But I do think that they're distinct. And I absolutely, as part of a little bit what you talked about in my bio, I do think a lot of times we think, oh, People with conferred, you know, like the idea of conferred or that you have to manage people in order to be a leader. Uh, uh-uh, uh, That's so not true. They are distinct and separate things. So love that you brought that up.
0: It's definitely important to keep that distinction in mind is that there are ways to do it without having to like stop coding or, you know, switch your, t- your tracks.
2: Well, that you can lead even without having some conferred title. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you can be a leader and that actually there are lots of people who are leaders who they lead from the back of the room or the side of the room or the middle of the room. It's when they speak up or, you know, like leadership is not just something about like having a certain title or being at the top. I'm using air quotes of an organization. Leadership is about who you are. And a lot goes to what you were talking about. So deftly, Coraline, just, such so well said
0: so that actually brings up an interesting question for people that may only be just realizing that there are ways that they can lead without having you know the mantle of management thrust upon them how do they get started in understanding what they're capable of and what they can do and what the next steps are and how they can develop that leadership skill
2: it's a really good question because it's it's funny. I have a lot of people come to me who are asking that, like, how do I step into my leadership? I don't want to manage people, but I, I want to step into management. And then also, like, am I a leader? Am I leadership material? And I think a lot of the reasons why it's hard is because of the way that we see leadership in our culture right now, oftentimes. Right. And we have a, a fairly narrow definition of it often. Um, I might sound like a broken record, but it really starts with, from my in my opinion, introspection. Who am I? What impact do I want to have in the world? What matters to me? Because once you understand those things, then you can understand where to apply your energy and where you're best. Because all leaders are not the same. I know you both know this, <laughs> but all leaders are not the same. People are extremely, extremely different. And I really think that the beginning place is, again, what matters to me? What do I value? What kind of impact do I have? What's my style? So, for example, I'm somebody who I don't like boot camp style leadership. Like, I I don't need it. I don't need you to come yell at me and like, come on and give me 10 or whatever that might look like. Even, you know, I push myself so hard. I like leadership and my kind of leadership is a little bit more. It's obviously like coaching and it's really collaborative. And so I know environments where I do best. If there's an environment where I'm supposed to just be really hard with people and push forward and someone wants to be super confrontational. But that's just not going to work for me. That's not an environment where I will excel as a leader. It's not that I can't do conflict. No problem with conflict, but there's a certain style. So I think it really begins with understanding who we are as a human being and really gets back to that question that you asked at the beginning, which is like, what's your superpower? Right? What is, what is my superpower? And then how do I apply it? And then understanding all of those things. Where am I most effective? What do I value? Where do I want to have impact?
1: So I'm not a very goal-oriented person. I do have personal goals for myself, but my goals are more informed by my values. And I found it to be a really good exercise. I've done it twice in my life now where I actually write down what my values are. And I look for ways that I can live those values and ways that I can express those values in a way that is influential. That comes down to like what my leadership style is. And that does fall in line with what you said about introspection, just being very deliberate though, about like right, just writing them down can help so much. And what I did was not only did I write down my values, but I also wrote down a list of questions that I can ask myself in a sort of personal retrospective. How well did I do? where did I fall down? Can I own my successes? Can I learn from my failures? And be I'm very deliberate about that sort of process.
2: Coraline, love it. That's exactly it. Being really deliberate. And then the key is writing it down. That's, a, that's wonderful, right? Because I think we think about values as these squishy things, or we think we understand them. It's funny. I do morning pages. And I was just writing about my values this morning. I'd never written about my values in my morning pages again. But I was like, oh, this situation won't work for me because it doesn't honor my value of X, right? Or I have this value. And so I think writing it down and being really deliberate, I love that you do it. What did you say? You do it frequently, like you'll ask yourself questions.
1: Yeah, retrospective. I do a personal retrospective at least once a week.
2: Once a week is great. I do mine a little bit less frequently, but I think retrospectives are really helpful, especially because you write it down. When you do your retrospective, it's like, do you write things down? or Are you more asking? Is it more like a conversation with yourself?
1: It depends. It depends on how I'm feeling about the retrospective that day. Sometimes I'm just asking questions of myself. And sometimes I am writing it down because in some ways I would like to see that evolve over time. And I would like to see improvement over time. So uh, it's a mix. It depends on how serious I am about it on a given day. But I'm trying to make a habit of it. And I think that's the important thing for me. I'm very structured in my life. And I'm very compartmentalized in my life. And uh, it's really valuable to me to set time aside for that. And that means for me doing it every Sunday when I get up, when I'm having my coffee, when I am not yet Slotting myself into some kind of activity and just making time for that introspection.
2: It's so good. Making time is so important. You know, to be introspective, I think it's easy to let the days slip by and then all of a sudden we're off course.
1: Yeah. If we're not checking in with ourselves, it's really easy to get caught up in whatever the uh, emergency of the day is or whatever the the work that you're doing and trying to get a project finished or it is important. Yeah. I think to make that time just to be with yourself and uh, make it quiet enough to think.
0: Yeah, I agree. Totally. I'm struggling with that right now. In fact.
2: Oh, can, can I hear more about that? I'm sorry. Do you mind if I ask? I'm curious what you're struggling with. I can't, the coaching me can't help asking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the phase of my life right now is that there are 15 different projects, both within and without my various jobs And they're they're all just sort of firing off together in different orders and with different priorities and different emergencies. And so it's that just being pulled in so many different directions that setting aside time to do that has been hard, even though I know the value of it.
2: I feel like that's so common. A lot of folks, what happens is they get busier and busier and then they get into overwhelm and they just they can't think possibly how they can just sit down, even though they know they know they need to do it. I feel like that's really common. I have no idea where you're at with it and no predictions. I think for some folks, it can get really hard, like really challenging and to the point where they can get to burnout if they're not careful with it. Again, I'm saying nothing about you and your ability, but that's really typical. And sometimes you might say, oh, well, focus and prioritize. And sometimes we just can't. Right. Like there's a lot coming at us and we can't always control What's coming at us. And certainly as a manager, things come at us sometimes that we don't have control over. It's like, oh, then there goes that my schedule is going over here. That's just what it is when we are working with people and organizations, which are dynamic I would say for anyone in that situation, and I don't know if you've tried this, John, but kind of what Coraline is talking about is like finding a a tiny window, tiny and any regular window and even making it small. I love the idea of like micro habits, like even 15 minutes. Cause I think what happens a lot of times we're like, I've got to sit down and it's got to be an hour and you know, and then it feels overwhelming. Um, I know for me, uh, one of the things I do that helps me stay grounded is I just write my morning pages. Does everybody know what morning pages are? It's, no, I was going to ask
1: you about that. But I'm so sorry. Is I'm podcast? saying that,
2: and I'm like, wait a minute. It's it's a really cool concept by Julia Cameron. Apparently, lots of pretty uh, effective, like really successful people do them. I just learned. What you do is basically you sit down with a piece of paper. I know we work in tech, but paper and pencil, and you write three pages in the morning, first thing. There's no purpose of it. You're not trying to get anywhere and it's handwritten. It is not typewriter. It is a time to really go in and figure out what's going on inside your brain and to get things out of you. And usually it takes me hmm, 15 or 20 minutes. Um, And so for me, it's one way to pull things out of my head. And I've actually, it's funny, I've written several uh, tweet threads because of that. I wasn't trying to, but it's actually become really super productive. Um, and I also noticed that it lowers my stress and anxiety because I've had a chance to write out what's going on inside my head. So I think that's a tiny micro habit that I do that's 15 or 20 minutes a day that I take in the morning to do that really helps me just think what see what's going peer inside my head and see what's going mm. on.
0: I like that. I like that that it's so unfocused. It's not like writing down goals and to-dos and planning. It's just let's just dump it all out and not focus on exactly what it is that's coming out. I like that.
2: Yeah, for me it's like I'm a super goal-oriented person. Like I always joke like I hit a goal or I die trying. And I'm still here. That's always my joke. So for me it's wonderful because it forces me to be really introspective. And like today I came up with values. I, okay, I'm talking about my values and I uncovered something because I had made a decision and I was like, but why am I making that decision? And I was feeling a little uneasy about it. But by writing, I was able to understand, I was able to find something and then I will be able to communicate to other people even better. So I would say for anyone who's facing that, maybe just a tiny fit like like Coraline does, maybe once a week or a small thing in the mornings, I think it can help to calm the overwhelm. It can help you focus a little bit and just give you time to be introspective.
0: Yeah, I actually have a calendar item to do that sort of retro work on Sundays. But so far, there have been too many other things that need to get done in that time frame, and I haven't done it. And I know it's like the complete paradox of that situation. Like if I actually set aside the time to do it, other things would get done faster and more in better order and it would be easier to keep track of them. I'm well aware. But it's aware. so hard. Yeah.
2: Right? It, I mean, <clears throat> what you're saying, I have so much compassion because I feel the same way, right? When I've, uh, I work for myself again now, but you know, I'm honest, when I had a job, things like that were easier for me to slip. I stayed pretty good with it, but it's actually really, it's really hard. I think also, I don't know about both of you, but there can be times maybe when we're a little bit scared to go inside our head and see what's going on. Introspective oh, yeah. times. I, or, or like, oh, oopsie, that happened. Didn't, you know, I'm a little bit off track. So I think if there's actually can be some real fear there.
1: I think I might be constitutionally well-suited for that kind of work. I have a complicated relationship with sleep. I get a lot of sleep, um, which is kind of unusual for someone with bipolar, with manic tendencies. But uh, I'm very slow to wake up in the morning. I hit snooze a lot. And then when I do get up, I'm not really capable of working until I'm like on my third cup of coffee. So I take my mornings very slowly. I'm definitely more productive later in the day. And I feel like my dreams are very vivid and I try to keep a dream journal, but I feel more connected to my subconscious in the morning because I'm slowly making that transition from really focusing on the subconscious to really becoming conscious and preparing for my day. So that that kind of transition for me, which is very slow, I think opens up opportunities for me to be introspective and for me to be intuitive. Yeah. I like
0: that. It reminds me of, there's, um, an old, I don't know if it's a koan or just a saying in, in meditation circles, which is, um, you should meditate an hour a day unless you're too busy to do that. In which case you should meditate two hours a day.
2: (laughs) I've (laughs) heard that. that I love that. Right. (laughs) Should you meditate? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's hard. I mean, I I think this is what I enjoy thinking about. I love that the idea of like personal effectiveness and how do we go about it? And I love that we're having such an open conversation about it because I think a lot of times there's a lot that's put out there in our social media, always perfect Instagram, you know, articles, five ways I changed my life culture that makes us think like we should always be perfect all the time and it should look like X And I think that the reality is, is that we're always searching for balance and personal efficacy in our lives. Sometimes we're in it and sometimes we fall out of it, you know? So I love this conversation. It reminds me too. I'm just human.
1: (laughs) Susan, at the end of every episode, we take a moment to reflect and we talk about the things that really resonated with us and maybe things that we want to change in our lives or start doing. I was really struck by what you said about powerful questions and coaching by asking questions. And I actually wrote down I have a I'm a note taker. I do it all digitally though. I don't work on paper. In my weekly tracking, I have a a personal document and a work document and both of those documents have a reminder section. Things that I want to keep in mind as I move through my day. And so I wrote down actually mentoring figured out how to ask powerful questions. That's something I want to uh I want to be better at. It's really easy for someone in my position to be the advice giver, to let those maternal instincts kick in and try and really guide people toward a decision that makes sense to me. And uh I want to shift that power balance back to the person that I'm trying to help and help them reveal The answers that they have inside them. So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm going to try and be better at.
2: I love that because it reminds me, uh, the word that you brought in there about Douglas McGregor, the contemporary of Maslow and the idea of autonomy You reminded me of that word and I love it because uh, that's what I'm always striving for. And what I think where we can be most powerful is when we help other people be autonomous. So I think that's one of the things I'm actually taking away is just even that word, which is big because I use the word empower a lot, but I feel like it gets overused. And I love, you know what I mean? It's like empower. But I love that word of autonomy. So I'm taking that away as something, a word that I really want to dig into and live with because I I do a theme of every year. I'm really into words. So this year, my theme is invest. And so my and then I'll do words of the week. And I think my word of the week is going to be autonomy. And I'm going to dig into what does that look like for me? And how do we give that to people? So um, I'm taking that away. Thank you.
0: Awesome. Thank you.
1: John, what are your thoughts?
0: The first thing was that there is a book called ask powerful questions by will wise that I have, I've only gotten one or two chapters in and, but I feel like there's probably a lot of really good meat in that book. I'm also sort of fascinated by this concept of asking questions because I've always valued the question as the way of eliciting insight and, and movement and motivation. But again, I don't feel like I'm particularly good at using that as a tool in when, in the times when I'm leading and, and when I'm mentoring. So uh, I think for me also, that's going to be something to focus more on and pay some more attention to so I can develop that skill.
2: That makes me so happy because it is the thing I talk about all the time. And it is the thing if I wanted one more thing in the world, it would be that is that we all ask, learn how to ask more questions to root out what's inside of these other people and help them find their answers or help to get to a result. So I love that you're both saying that. That makes me so happy. I have tears in my eyes.
1: (laughs) Susan, I really want to thank you. This has been a great discussion and uh, I think it'll be really useful to our audience in a lot of ways, no matter where they are in their career development and whether, no matter how they express their leadership. So I've definitely learned a lot and uh, just thank you so much for being our guest today.